Welcome to Bit Splitting with Daniel Jalkin. My guest today is Erica Hall, co-founder of the Mule Design Studio and the Mule Radio Syndicate. Today's show is sponsored by HelpSpot. Customer service is your best marketing. Make every ticket count with HelpSpot. Welcome back, everybody, to Bit Splitting. Uh, I'm Daniel Jalkut, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Erica Hall, co-founder and director of strategy at Mule Design in San Francisco, also the co-founder, I believe, of the Mule Radio Network. Um, one of your other projects is the Unsuck It project, which aims to cat- catalog and put definitions to all the bogus language you hear in meetings, etc., and uh, you have a book in progress, Just Enough Research. So lots of stuff going on. Thank you for making some time to join me today on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Daniel. Yes, I wow, you list it all out, and uh, it, it, I've been doing a lot of things, <laughs> it sounds like. Isn't it kind of nice to have somebody else list it, though? Because if you're <laughs> like me, you just sort of lose track of all these things you're doing. And it uh, it's, it's like kind of the conundrum of busy people that you you may end up like kind of the more stuff you're doing the more you feel like you're not doing anything yeah it's true and i also forget people ask me like what have you been doing or the worst is when i I have to write bios for things all the time and i i can't think of what to put in the bio and then i have to go i have to ask people what am i doing so um when you say writing a bio for something, what does that mean? In, in what context? Oh, um, speaking at con- I've been speaking at conferences uh, a lot lately or um, contributing to other people's books or, or things like there just seem to be all of these times in my life where I have to provide a bio and a headshot. And I hate both of those things the most. Right, right. Those are, the, those are exactly the kinds of things you wish somebody else would do for you. So you wouldn't like you wouldn't have to fear that you're coming off to like uh egotistical or that you're like picking a, a photo that you think is yeah like your best photo of all time um so you know i think uh, many listeners probably recognize no no of you through mule design through the mule radio network um i don't remember exactly how i first met you except that it's one of those foggy Twitter memories. I think it's something that came about through Twitter. The internet. Uh, yeah. The internet is <laughs> responsible for all of this. I, I want to make a note of starting to like, um, if I, st- it, it would be great if a Twitter client had me make a note when I add somebody, then I could say, oh yeah, that's, that's what inspired me to venture down that path. But um, I just, I, I, as I'm getting older and Losing all my memory, I just uh, everyone's just in the blur of the internet. Um, but one of the things I like to do uh, on this show, as young as it is, is to get away from sort of the current. Like we all, all of us who get to know each other on Twitter, we learn a lot about what our opinions are about current, current events, political stuff, tech stuff, uh, what's on TV. Uh, you know, judgments about all this different stuff, and I find that. I'm missing something. You know, I've gotten to know a bunch of people like yourself on Twitter, and it's kind of fun to me to have the opportunity to learn a little bit more about what happened in your life before Twitter. Or sometimes actually learn somebody's real name. 
Oh, exactly. Well, that, do, you, I mean, do you have that? Do you have all these people you talk to on Twitter all the time and you're like, oh, that's banana pants. Uh, I, I feel very close to them, but I don't actually know their real name <laughs> right. or what they do in life. And sometimes the uh, real name is even, you know, kept a secret beyond just the accident of it. Like, uh, I would consider her a friend, uh, Lesson on, uh, on Twitter. I don't even know mm-hmm. if I'm pronouncing that exactly right, but, um, you know, uh, I don't know, I don't know her real name mm-hmm. and, uh, that doesn't really diminish my ability to appreciate what she contributes to the community. But, uh, in your case, since you have been so kind to share your real name and, uh, seem to be open about talking about who you actually are, um, I wanted to start with uh, just kind of going way back, and I seem to recall from speaking of Twitter, you know, we we get these glimpses into people's pasts. I, th- I seem to recall a few years ago, you were tweeting about like the nostalgic trip through Southern California or return to Southern California, mm-hmm. and um, I assume that that means maybe that's where you hail from. Yes, I am from Los Angeles. From L.A. and in San Francisco. So it's like a a behind enemy lines type of a situation. (laughs) Well, I, I, you know, I felt like I was I think I was born in the wrong half of the state. And people who people who aren't from California uh, maybe don't have a sense of how. uh, It's it's not necessarily a totally strong north south divide, but there there's definitely people identify as Southern Californians or Northern Californians a lot. Definitely. I, you know, I grew up in Northern California and, um, I, I take it as a sign of my maturity that I was finally able to start like considering Southern California without just a knee jerk reaction to it. And it's probably similar, uh, coming from the other direction. Uh, well, not for me because I always wanted to live up here. Ah, okay. Yeah. I won't, I won't say that I was a fish out of water down there because I had, you know, growing up in Los Angeles has a lot of advantages. I think you get more vitamin D than, uh, than a lot of people in other parts of the world. You never have to wear a coat. Um, the beaches are lovely. And there's actually, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of culture and real history. And it's a really, I mean, you, you read the history of Los Angeles. It's a really, really interesting place, except the city should not exist. Right. If you know anything about the histories of civilization, you put a civilization near a source of fresh water, and and they didn't really do that in Los Angeles. Right. The only thing that makes Los Angeles appear to be like a a a um, fertile you know civilization is the fact that they that people then went and invented Las Vegas to make places like Los Angeles look like <laughs> regular cities. <laughs> Yeah, um, but it's a yeah, it's a fine. And it, but it took me a while after because I left. I, I went to college uh, back east. Uh, as soon as I turned eighteen, I, I really wanted to get out of there. And it did take me several years to be able to go back without prejudice, uh, because I because I wanted to get away from you know the traffic and certain aspects of the culture and maybe not get so much sunshine. Well, so you, you said you went out east. So I, I guess you you you. You said previously you sort of pictured yourself eventually ending up in San Francisco or in, in Northern California. Was that something that made, like, was there a, a conflict when you were thinking, oh, where am I going to go to school? Was was Northern California on the radar at that point? Yeah, it actually was. I thought I'd, I thought I'd probably go to Berkeley or something like that. And ending up going east was sort of a, a strange last minute 
huh, is this something that's actually possible decision? Uh, I always wanted to go to, to college, you know, somewhere away from home. Like, I think that's a really important part of the whole experience is, is getting out of the house. And many of my friends went to UCLA, mm-hmm. if, if only because, you know, that my high school parents would actually bribe their kids. They'd say, well, you could go to a school out of state or you could go to a private school. But if you go to UCLA and uh, and you can live at home, I'll buy you a BMW. Right. Well, the, the cost with the savings. savings. Yeah. Yeah. So significant, especially with the uh, in-state tuition. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, as a parent now. Of, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I would buy my child a BMW. <laughs> I'm thinking uh, Mass- I'm, I live in Massachusetts now and Massachusetts schools, you know, they're pretty good kids. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so where did you go in uh, in the east for school? Uh, I I went to Dartmouth. Oh, great. Up, up in New, New Hampshire. New Hampshire, as far yeah. as you can get from Los Angeles. Culturally and... Uh, in the contiguous in, U.S. In, yes. all, in all ways. Yeah, a tiny, it's in a town of like seven, I think it's up to 7,000 people now or something like that in the middle of New Hampshire. I'd never been further east than Nevada when I went to college. And wow. I just thought, you know, I've seen Newhart. Um, it'll be like that kind of, uh, yeah, it was a real, it's wacky and it, I think it was a, a good decision, but it's not, it's not an easy place and, uh, it's, uh, it's got its challenges. Do do you mean by not being easy? Like in particular, I imagine the weather was a shock coming from LA. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that freezing rain was a thing. Right. (laughs) I expected snow and all of that. And, you know, a small New England town uh, full of people who went to New England prep schools is very, very different from from Los Angeles. And there were certain, um, you know, and I talked to uh, uh, people from from East about sort of class issues a lot. And class issues are very like like we talk about the difference between and I'm sure you've experienced this personally now that you live in Massachusetts, that, you know, the East Coast, West Coast difference. Yeah. And I think class issues out West are very, very different. I, 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 there's not that old money. There's not the main line. You know, there's, I don't, I can't think of places in Los Angeles that you couldn't go because you weren't of a certain class as long as you had money. Right. And, and there is this, and we don't have special, like I learned that there were places people with money vacationed or summered that were different from places it's like oh you go to nantucket or you go to the shore and it depends it's a class marker and those sorts of things like i i didn't know what nantucket was or what it meant like i knew what moby dick was and all that sort of thing but it was sort of funny for me going there totally naive totally yeah not being able to interpret any of the class markers and to me um, I think that that was really good because everybody sort of assumed I was of the same class since I was there, even though I'd grown up uh, with really not a lot of money. And in Los Angeles, it was all it was all on the surface, right? The kids kids drove BMWs to school if they had money. Um, kids, you know, wore label clothes and, and shopped in certain stores, and it was all very much on the surface. And then you go back east, and everything is. Uh, is sublimated a little bit and it's it's a lot more nuanced and a lot more subtle yeah that's very very interesting yeah and so that part was really strange and it didn't really i didn't really start to fully understand it until after i left and understood my whole experience and thought well that was a really great experience to have had but it was very strange because people there's a sense of entitlement that people had that um that i didn't have and i sort of had to had to develop it 
by observing people. I was like, a, you know, monkeys in the zoo. I'm like, oh, look, they're demanding certain privileges. I could demand. It never occurred to me just because I felt so ex- privileged to just um, or like honored to be there. Like, oh, it's it's great that I'm just here. And then I saw the kids who just assumed that they were also entitled to things. Just mm. get get things. Um. And that was that was as much of an education as anything in my classes is just watching that sense of entitlement work for people. Even even people on scholarship would just walk into the financial aid office and say, I need more money. And the school (laughs) and and because it was a private school and because it wasn't like UCLA where where my, you know, even my friends who had money had to kind of fight through big, long lines for things because it's a giant public school university. The school, the people at the school would just say, "Okay, we'll find more money for you. Because that is a thing that a tiny private school with a large endowment can do for you. Yeah, there's a there's a tendency, I think, coming from California to um, not have those expectations, expectations of entitlement. But then, like, as far as the cultural boundaries go, uh, you were probably sort of like me growing up in California. You just assume you can go everywhere, at least. Like, yeah. You, know, you can go. You can walk right into... Uh, you know, there's no special like dining hall or something that you're not allowed into, or, you know, I don't know. Right. It's like, it's like, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And, um, it's like, it's a sense of, oh, can I afford to go there? That is the only question growing up in Los Angeles, not, am I welcome? And this is of course, speaking as, you know, uh, a white, well-educated person who has these certain privileged assumptions, right? right? That like, right, of course, <laughs> I don't want to gloss over all of that, but um, but even like like race and stuff is it's different. It's a very it's a very different because the the immigrant cultures are different and everything. So so yeah, but there is an assumption like I just had an assumption like oh I can I can walk I can walk in a place yeah and and not a sense of like do I belong here? Is this for is this a place for people like me um, that I think you, there is that sense in the East Coast of like, oh, you certain people belong in certain places, certain people like just the va- vacationing in in like the Hamptons. Or, it's so that it, that was so strange to me because I'm still afraid of that. I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm afraid to go there. <laughs> why are you? Yeah. Why are you afraid to go there? Well, I, I actually went to Nantucket once, for example, uh-huh. and uh, a lot of things about the East have been. Uh, accelerants in my sort of maturity for lack of a better word but you know things like what do you wear to this kind of place um you could live your whole life in california and not necessarily learn that stuff uh it just sort of depends what kinds of uh events you get invited to or or whatnot yeah do you watch downton abbey of course. <laughs> so it's like that. It's like, oh wow, you yes. <laughs> you don't have the right jacket to wear to this meal with these people at this time of the day, and that right. that to me just seems like a giant pain in the ass. Like, I know exactly the scene, yeah. the episode <laughs> yeah, you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, and they all look at him, and and to to my modern, you know, West Coast raised eyes, I'm like, he's wearing it like a tux right. with like he's wearing something very very fancy, very fancy, right? but it's not. But there's like this this level and i think yeah i think there are there are things like that um and and so of course it's very strange for me now so the really strange thing was you know i i went to public school lusd school a giant high school that my high school was almost as big as as the college i went to uh and then i then i managed to get into this wacky tiny school on the other side of the country and then i came back here and then everybody assumed then i couldn't talk about where i went to college (laughs) 
<laughs> because then everybody, like you say that and it's not, because it's a weird one too. It's not like, like even, I guess even if you said you went to Harvard, that would somehow seem more normal. But it's like, it's a school that not, you know, it's not super well known. And if you went, there's a whole, it's weird. It's weird because then you can't be like, oh, I totally just went to, I went to Dartmouth because it sounds like, oh, I'm, you know, and then, then you have to downplay it a little bit. And so I ended up coming from like, oh, I've got to hide the fact that I grew up on welfare to, oh, I kind of have to downplay where I went to college uh, because people will assume, you know, that that I, I have other sort of class baggage, which is super weird. And of course, there's a really coded way to talk about it. You know, people say, oh, you don't lead with it. You people ask you where you went to school and you start with, oh, you know, in, in back east or, you know, if you really if you want to send a really coded message, it's a, oh, I went to school in New Hampshire. And then <laughs> uh, that's the way that's the way people talk about it, because you don't just want to come out and say it. And then then they say, oh, we're in New Hampshire. And that's an invitation. Otherwise, right. it seems like you're you're leading with that. And so that whole thing was very strange for me because then there's I, I got a whole new set of assumptions but the fact that i did actually quite literally class climb is is kind of i mean it's interesting it's it's yeah. great it's great but it's also it it's weird it's a weird feeling um and you know i have lots of yeah i don't and especially because the school like the school's been in the news and it is a ter- like terrible things go on there with the the Greek system and I've heard horrible things about the the state of uh, relations uh, among the genders there and you know mm. sexual harassment and binge drinking there all of all these horrible things are going on there and I went back for my reunion and it's a very it's a very strange institution to contemplate being back out here in what I would consider my natural environment in California right um, you know it's not. It's not straightforward to think, oh, I just I went to a good school and I met a lot of great people and had a good education. And those things are all true. But then there's a lot of creepy baggage associated with it, um, which is just sort of I mean, it's it's kind of interesting. And then I think, well, would I ever recommend somebody go there or do I even recommend, like, especially in this day and age, a really incredibly expensive private school education? You know, thinking about those sorts of things is a. Uh, yeah, in terms of like, well, uh, are there policy implications uh, to these things? Like, do I do I have, you know, an a, an opinion on, you know, maybe people we shouldn't value educations like that, which kind of reinforce this elite class. It's a, mm. you know. All right. Well, I want to take a minute and thank my sponsor this time around. HelpSpot is a customer service must. HelpSpot allows you to convert chaotic, disjointed email interactions into structured help desk tickets that can be easily managed as well as providing customers self-service opportunities using the integrated service center. Real-time reporting makes it easy to keep tabs on what's happening and identify problems and trends more quickly. Make your organization's customer service what sets you apart from the competitors and give HelpSpot a try. BitSplitting listeners can get 15% off through May 1st, by using the promo code BITS1. Well, I took a look at this. I I went and signed up for the trial version of the service in anticipation of the show. And I have to say, it really has a lot of uh, great tools, really comprehensive stuff. It has just about everything you can imagine relating to dealing with your customers and managing uh, customer service interactions. It has a forum for customers to talk with each other. Direct messages uh, allow customers to get in touch with you privately. And there's even really cool features like a history feature where you can search all the past issues that a customer has had. And uh, you can even review notes, uh, private notes that you and your staff 
colleagues may have left about the incidents that a particular customer has had in the past. So it looks like a really, really useful thing, especially if you are managing a very customer service oriented company. Thanks a lot, HelpSpot, for sponsoring the show. Once again, you can learn more at HelpSpot.com. Well, one of the one of the things that's good about you choosing to go to the opposite end of the country is you not only got that distance from your native environment, but any of those bad feelings you have, you can kind of just leave them out there. You know, when you come back, it's, <laughs> they're like really distant from you. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's real. It's yeah, it's not. It's not a lot of people. You know, I know people who who, real, who stayed there, stayed on campus because it is it's very be- like I'm really I'm very glad I went there. Like, no mistake. I'm super uh, sort of uh, looking back on it. You know, you, there are things in your life where you're like, how did that how did how did I do that? And how did I do that at seven? How did I do that one at 17? Like, how did I make this incredible life decision at 17? Like, right. that is mind-blowing to me, especially sometimes when I can't figure out what takeout place I want to get dinner from. I'm like, how, yeah. how did I just make this, like, enormous, like, well, bye, guys, I'm getting on an airplane and going to a tiny town in New Hampshire. Um, and uh, uh, so so that part's and I don't regret it because of the experience, but it's a very, it's very complicated. It's very complicated, but it, it was a great school and when i was there i think was possibly the best it was the best time to be there as a woman because it was only co-educated or um is that even a word i know now uh, <laughs> yeah, my fancy <laughs> my fancy education and my vocabulary um it only went co-ed in the 70s and there was huge resistance so i think i think maybe one of the things that was really good is i mean i'd say it's, it's good for people to go and witness that and go like don't just go don't say like oh, i'm just going to go to uh, a public school or a very liberal school, but but go into institutions like that because you see how um, institutional privilege is um, is reinforced and how you know I, I think I got to I got a good picture of class in America by going there, right. but but the fact was because I I didn't understand it I didn't understand how much privilege I was seeing until in retrospect I thought about all the things I had access to. Uh, and all the things that people took for granted that they then, you know, when, when they're very young and an undergrad, they take these things for granted and then they could just continue to take these things for granted throughout life. And people, you know, you make really strong bonds with people in colleges like that. And um, and it, it can, you know, you can make connections for the rest of your life because it's, it, it's uh, because of that that experience, which is way more important than, oh, I got to study with a, this subject with a really great professor. And it's like, well... Uh, you know, you get this, you get this set of connections and you get this pedigree and that's way more important than anything you would have studied there. Um, right. And that, so having that, like that was a, a big part of the education. Um, and, uh, yeah, and still it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I got to see some, some really creepy institutions up, up close and personal, <laughs> but at the, at the, like, yeah, the, the, whole, the fraternity system is, is so peculiar like single gender and i think we're dealing with a lot of this stuff in the tech industry now um see i can i can actually bring it back around to what we do because um you know there's a uh there's a lot of discussion right now about sexism in the tech industry Mm -hmm. and when i started in the web way back in 1995 that wasn't an issue it was like internet thing internet was an alternative culture right yeah, and there were a lot of women, and I'm, I'm, I, I think I am remembering this correctly. You know, it seemed like a lot of a meritocracy. Like if you could pick up a book on HTML and teach yourself this thing, you could immediately get a job. And right. um, 
and there were punks and goths and women and you know everybody just all together that was sort of a fringe culture that selected against a lot of those sort of like less social socialized um you know like what i mean is it 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 seems like the, the 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 problem players like the bad characters tend to come in when the numbers really grow right mm-hmm. if you have this if you have this little fringe society well sure it could be like the fringe society that's dedicated to sexism and racism yeah. or whatever but um you know this thing that kind of like is this positive pull for people from mm-hmm. all different backgrounds and i think that that just gives people enough of like uh, the the people who are drawn to something positive like that are not as likely i think to be like jerks for lack of a better word yeah well and there there was a, a big there's a utopian thread in all of it it was like oh where the internet is new and we're building a new economy and we're doing new things and it's all going to be great because on the internet like nobody can discriminate against you because they don't you know they don't know if you're a dog or a man or a woman <laughs> right. or, or old or young and so it's like this world of possibilities and i think what's sort of disheartening now is to see this like sort of dominant culture just come in and and now we're still the fact that we're still talking about hey guys don't be jerks to women be inclusive and it blows my mind that we're having this conversation like 20 years later and the fact and then i went you know i went back to my college reunion and heard that things were terrible i heard some terrible things about about what it was like to be a woman there and i'm like it was awesome to be a woman there excuse me when i was there because the numbers were finally starting to reach parity because it had only been co-ed for like 15 or 20 years. And the women there were incredibly outspoken and starting new organizations and like very take charge, um, outspoken people. And then it's like, oh, and now, you know, the, the culture is dominated by the fact that that women want male attention and the sororities are incredibly popular because that's the only way that women will get support from other women because everybody's in competition for men. <laughs> it's, it's so yeah it seems like we might just be sort of in culturally in one of those valleys of obviously there was a very 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 long time in history where women were not at an elevated place and then they've sort of had these like peaks and valleys mm-hmm. in, and it, it, you know things like the what you were describing like there seems to be like a, a emphasis on that you know overt seeking of male attention like in society um so maybe it's worth just kind of being well i'll I'll choose to be somewhat optimistic that we're just in a rally (laughs) come out of that but uh, i mean i I can see possibly when you were at the school it was just like it wasn't on the top of everybody's minds And, and you know some people will blame things like the internet ultimately for like you know like a lot of the um, hyper-sexualization of women it comes from the internet itself. And, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think of my kids now like, oh, two boys are going to be growing up and they're just going to have like this inundation of what the internet shows them, you know? Um, it's it's so great in so many ways because it's mm-hmm. unedited collaboration and culture and exposure mm-hmm. to everything. And then it's like, whoa, it just brings this new challenge. Like part part of the reason probably that you had a better experience back then was people just weren't as like uh, implicitly educated about how to be 
that that sexist maybe like I sort no of feel yeah I don't, I don't i don't think so because you look back like people were you know there's more uh it, it, women have a lot more equality and there's a lot more assumption you know that like that you can have whatever job you want or have an expectation like we, we have an expectation i think there is an expectation of, of going to work and not being harassed and having equal opportunities that there didn't used to be like i wouldn't i wouldn't blame the internet right. because you know in, institutional sexism goes way 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 back and is still you know it's not it's not equally great in this the same places all over the world um and but it's really it's so frustrating. I think it's so frustrating because I, I I just ask why I'm like why because you read about these things like like I was reading an article on Jezebel on the way over about a woman who spoke who like called out a couple guys at a conference for like making some cracks or being jerks and and why when a woman speaks out because I don't think this has to do with the internet but I think it has to do with the internet enabling it but why when a woman speaks out and says oh these guys said jerky things to me or Hey, could you not do that? Why are there right. death threats and rape threats? And that's right. not, and there's more of them and they're in, um, they're, I think, in greater quantity because of the internet, because, it, you know, <clears throat> it amplifies everything and provides a more of a platform for many, many people to comment. But what it always, it just mystifies me, I guess, because I'm sort of optimistic and don't have a good understanding of human nature. What on earth would possess somebody to? pile on to somebody instead of say oh hey let's be respectful like why is why is being disrespectful and putting someone down somebody's go-to and the go-to for so many people yeah it's really especially disgusting you're you're right that for some i i it's hard to fathom who these people are who just almost like a gut reaction they just if they know or even suspect that the target of their ill you know feelings is a woman for some reason, they jump to that, to that violence and yeah, because it's with a guy. Like maybe you'd call it, you'd say, "Oh, you're stupid, and I disagree with you, and you're a jerk." But it takes this tone when a woman speaks out, and so women stop speaking out, and women get really discouraged. So anytime a woman puts herself out there, I'm not saying any time, and I'm not saying that like all all guys are jerks, but but I, we've been seeing this happen. I think with a lot of frequency in the past couple of years. And I think it seems so shocking because it, it, there's a sense to me and a lot of people I know of, wait, why why are we still having this conversation? Why are we still having a conversation that, you know, rape is bad and we should like blame the rapist, not blame the victim? Or, you know, if a woman says, hey, why don't you show me some respect when I speak out? That right. that's a question, and I think that's. I'm, I'm sorry, we went to a really dark place with this conversation. <laughs> well, it's on, it's on, it's on both of our minds because I, I know the the incident you're referring to, and it's just like it has been a big conversation point. And I mean, the thing that keeps coming back with these kinds of incidents that come up is inevitably what you're talking about happens, which is that the you know whatever whoever the bad actors are in the primary case, it's always trumped by the actions of the greater internet community, you know, who just like blow our minds with how nasty and terrible they can be. Yeah. And it's like in this case, like the, the woman who was offended by the, uh, the jokes in this conference was, had already sort of 
come to, she and the the main guy who had made the jokes had already sort of come to terms with an uh, with an apology you know not an, not an apology per se I mean, the guy apologized and she seemed to accept it and it was like one of these things where the primary actors had taken care of their business to some extent yeah and then the the, the drama seeking i guess and then just the vile vileness perpetuating comes in and just that's the real problem that's that's what it is i guess yeah and i think that's the like that that's something that really i think bears a certain amount of study because we're all you know in this business we're really focused on creating usable systems and um and we can really focus on well what makes a particular app or or website really good to use and i i think we need to study kind of internet communication to understand how we with an eye towards how can we stop that kind of behavior thinking right. thinking about the this this type of um networked immediate communication as a system that we need to redesign because i think i think there's a little social engineering that we could actually do and i think that's something that really bears studying because i think i think most people like maybe this is optimistic i think most people want to have an environment of you know professional respect or, or general respect. And I also think most people, you know, agree that you should, you can also take a joke at certain times, you know, it's not that we're going to ban all humor or joking around. And, you know, of, of course we, we joke with each other constantly here in the office, but there's, there's like this sense of, um, of we all respect each other so we can joke and, and nobody, and it, it's not used to, you know, demean or overpower or quiet somebody um and and i think that the thing that's distressing is a sense of like oh you know some people don't have a right to speak out and if they exercise that right we're going to uh retaliate to 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 chill that kind of that kind of speech right well the thing that that happens in a situation like your workplace is everybody you know unless there's a real bad social vibe going on everybody probably tends to feel pretty safe in general. So yeah. they feel safe with each other. And when that's the setting, then there's a whole different set of guidelines for what the yeah. limits are. Exactly. Not like we, we don't totally know each other. So why don't you err on the side of not, you know, acting in a, a threatening or demeaning manner. And there is also something like when you know each other, we have, yeah, there's a standard. There's an, an more an implicit standard, I think, than an explicit standard because we're a small company, so we don't have to publish a lot of explicit standards. And we're small enough that we get, we see each other, we know each other. And so if somebody says something that any of us finds out of line, you can just go to that person aside and be like, hey, not cool. Right. And the other person's response will be, oh, like if there's a misunderstanding, let's clear it up. But people generally don't don't want to threaten each other or demean each other it's like oh we do really respect each other and we do want to make each other feel safe and we'll joke around if somebody's like oh that wasn't cool generally it's like oh well help me understand because i think maybe you know you're overreacting but then help me understand your perspective and then okay i i I don't want to i don't actually want to you know make anybody feel bad here right well well speaking of mule and to just sort of get us on a new subject (laughs) um (laughs) I um I'm kind of curious just to hear a little bit more about how what happened to get you from studying at Dartmouth to you know how did, how did you end up getting to San Francisco and then was Mule like something that happened 
quickly or did you spend a lot of time in San Francisco um, doing other stuff? Uh, well, yeah. So I, I was a philosophy major. This is actually a philosophy podcast as it happens. Yeah, oh, excellent. I couldn't find a better category on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, it's a great category. Um, and I was, I was really... Uh, and that was a whole random, kind of semi, not semi-random, but uh, it, you know, another set of decisions. We're like, oh, I'll study philosophy, and it actually turned out to be an incredibly useful major. So what I'll say is, if anybody out there is, uh, you know, still deciding what to study, I, I would say philosophy actually has a tremendous amount of vocational utility. Um, and you know, I'd always been interested in you know communication and publishing and things like that. And so, so once I, I got out to San Francisco. And, you know, saw the Internet was a thing. I'm like, I want I want to do that thing. Um, and after, you know, just it was a recession right when I graduated. So I had sort of a horrible grunt job, which was for a venture capital partnership. So I got to kind of see that world hmm. uh, from the inside. And um, I, you know, I started working. Uh, I went to work for IDG and worked on some of their very first Internet things. And so I got to really start to see the transition of a print publisher to, to deal with like, what is this web thing and what do we do with it? And then I worked for a startup that spun out of that. And then um, I, I took some time off and then I got into the agency world and I went to work for a really super awesome, like really uh, fantastic, fun agency. But then that was acquired and various other things. And now when you say agency, I'm not really in that world, but that's, that's okay. just, that means like a consulting business. Yeah. Or- yeah. So as opposed to like what the way we talk about it a lot is that, you know, there's a product companies, you right. know, people, people who like make it, make a thing and a lot of startup, most startups are in this category, most internet startups are in this category. Like we make an application or a product company, um, you know, you make, you make software or you provide client services and that's the right. kind of agency. And it was a, a sort of user centered design oriented, uh, branding and communications client services agency. And so that I really that type of work I really enjoyed because I like problem solving and I have a relatively short attention span. So I really like working on a project, getting really immersed with a client and their business. And you get to learn all sorts of stuff and you get to solve important business problems for people. And then you then you can move on. And I just I really like that pace of work. Like some people really like having that ownership of like I'm working on one product and nurturing it and growing it over several versions and working with customers or that sort of model. Um, but I really liked the, the client services model and, um, yeah. And then after doing that for a while, working in a couple agencies, uh, I met Mike Montero and we're like, Hey, let's start our own agency. Why not? <laughs> and was that, was that motivated by some critical, like a lack of, happening to have a job at that time or looking <laughs> was, at the landscape and thinking this is an opportunity? It was 2001 when nobody in the internet business had jobs. So yes. Yeah. Um, but it was also the realization having worked in a couple of agencies, uh, the, the big insight was the clients you choose make you the kind of agency you are and make you get the kind of business you are. Like that's really... Um, because it's the problems you solve. It's the kind of people you work with. If you work with a certain type of client, they, of course, recommend similar clients to you. And it's not just clients in the same industry, but it's like if you work with if you're very selective about the people you work with and you work with good people, they will know other good people. And right. um, 
And if you work with people who value certain things, you're a lot more likely to get referred to other clients who value similar things. And so having seen that and having worked, of course, if you work for somebody else's agency, you're likely to work with clients that maybe um, like not necessarily bad, terrible people or, or bad, terrible um, organizations, but you really get to see like, oh, I wish I'd had the choice to work on something else or to not work on this because I didn't feel good about working on this. And so that was the big insight of, okay, if we start our own agency, then we can pick the kind of work that we want to work on. And we can also um, hire the kind of people that, that we want to work with because it's because those those two things are, are what make an agency and they're very important. And also, uh, it's the idea that, that this kind of company can really be a platform to do anything. And I think we've been doing a lot of that, like with, uh, you know, the radio in particular. Right. The idea that, well, Mule, um, because we're not building Mule and positioning it to, you know, for acquisition, because it is a, sort of an ongoing um, company of a modest size, we can use it as a platform to do whatever we want that we think is interesting and could make money. Right. And it's like, um, I could see, because when you were saying how much you enjoyed the agency work and having a, you know, your, your short attention span, getting constantly peppered with new ideas. The first thing I was thinking back to is, oh, I, I liked that too, but I hated it when I, you know, only had this job to do that I really didn't like. And, you know, and, and what you're saying is basically you can, by building your own company, you've been able to you know, obviously you probably can't eliminate ever doing anything that you don't, don't completely enjoy, but you can optimize for having a much better shot at great experiences most of the time. Right. And, um, yeah. And because uh, like the, every, like I find everything we do really interesting and we work for like everybody we work with, every client we take on, uh, they're, they're real, they're not, they're good people. Um, and because especially over the years, as we've worked with so many good people and they were for a good people, like that is the truest thing. Saying no to things is really, really powerful. And there's just a, a really good article for creative people on a on medium. And I wish I could remember more about it, but it was about saying no, just in terms of preserving your time for what's really important to you. Mm-hmm. But also just saying no, because especially when you're just starting out, the temptation is just like you, you're really worried. You're like, oh, my God, people aren't going to hire me. I need to say yes to everything. Right. And it's and it's way it's really incredibly essential to say no to things that aren't the kind of work you want to be doing, because the kind of work you take on leads to more of that kind of work. And this is true if you work for people who lowball you and don't value the work or you work for people who are doing something kind of sketchy or you know anything like that. So it's it, the your veto power as a client service agency is really, really powerful. Yeah, it's it's it, that's interesting. I I have been guilty of saying yes too much in the past, and um, I think it's partly because I got confused by you know there's there's a lot of situations where saying yes, in spite of an instinct to say no, is actually a good idea because it might be overcoming a fear or um, you know right. mo- moving outside your comfort zone, and uh, I may have been confused and thought for a while there. Mm, whenever I am uncomfortable, it probably just means I should say yes. But sometimes I'm uncomfortable actually because it's a bad decision or that's a bad client mm-hmm. or that's a bad, that's a bad choice. Um, so that's, uh, I agree with, I agree with what you're saying about this, the power of saying no. Um, 
I, uh, I would consult people sometimes who were just getting started in, in consulting and or I'd, I should say I would advise them and I'd say, you know, if, if, if there's nothing better than like giving the client the number that you know you deserve and then being prepared to say no if they won't accept that because it's almost as good feeling <laughs> to come out of a, I mean, obviously you don't have the job yeah. then, but coming out of that, you're bolstered for holding your own on the next you know, opportunity that comes along. Yeah, definitely. And it is, it is a learning process. Like, you know, you don't, you don't immediately know all the things and you make mistakes, but mistakes, like all the, you learn all the cliches, but it's the kind of thing you could sit down and tell somebody and, you know, say, okay, here are the things to do. Don't make the mistakes I made. But of course people have to make the, that, some set of mistakes like that because that's that's where you learn you're like wow we totally shouldn't have taken that job or we totally should have said no in this case or you know and you find out and then you because it is once you do say no or once you set a standard you find it is kind of developing that sense of entitlement because then you find out that you can set terms to a certain extent, like that you do have power in a situation. And that's and that is what you learn. And that's why it's a good feeling. And, you know, we, we have talked to people at sometimes who, who contacted us about working with us. And we said, well, no, we're not going to take the job. And they've been surprised. Like this hasn't happened in, in a while, I think, because uh, we have like, you know, over the years we start getting because we we work with good people and who refer the good people we kind of have this this thing where the the level of people who've been contacting us has has just increased over the years uh but there have been times in the past where we say oh we're not going to work with you and the the potential client has been kind of shocked that that was our call well uh speaking of saying no you know i wanted to talk a little bit more about the fact that, that you have started this mule radio networks um and in particular you you know you have some very popular very very big shows like John Gruber's The Talk Show. Um, you also have your own show with, uh, with I, I believe it's the lawyer, the, the very mm-hmm. lawyer that you use at <laughs> Mule. Is that right? Yes. Gabe Levine, our, our, very, our very own lawyer and, uh, and a very good friend. So the reason I linked that to saying no is because I've, um, I've been listening to this these last few episodes trying to get a better uh, perspective on some of the stuff the stuff you're you're doing and I was just listening to the latest episode uh for for folks who haven't heard the show it's kind of a great um combination an unlikely combination of legal not advice but legal education <laughs> we're very clear about that yes uh legal education or just discussion and endurance sports like running swimming cycling etc so running from the law is the name of the show and i was very pleased to um be running while i was listening this morning and one of the interesting say no examples was really uh you know gabe was talking about contracts and just all the subtle little things like part of the um art of saying no is learning that you can say no and also learning when to say no and like the example i i heard the surprise in your voice when he was talking about this time is of the essence uh magic phrase that apparently we are supposed to be completely terrified by if we see it in a contract. Um, (laughs) It it sounds just sort of like a vague Ben Franklin-y maxim, but apparently it means that in certain circumstances you can uh, be, what is it, found in breach of a contract if you don't, 
you know, meet certain deadlines or something. It's like an enforceable provision. There are there weird phrases like that, like in a workmanlike fashion pops up sometimes right. where it's like, what is what does that even mean? They're all great examples of why you definitely need a lawyer <laughs> and yeah. and also examples of why whenever I've made like whenever I have made non-lawyer assisted agreements with people, I think it's a good idea to just use totally almost like almost like modern jargony <laughs> language is better than trying to put some like, you know, pe- people try to like pretend to be lawyers and use these like, Oh, that's terrible. And then, and then they might accidentally use something like time yeah. is of the essence. You know, if you just said you agree that we need to get this stuff done, <laughs> right. That's almost yeah. like, that's almost like better. But I remember, um, you know, uh, back when I first got hired at Apple in 1996, and I was signing the contract and somebody said, somebody like a little more mature than me, a little older in, in the engineering department said, you know, take a look at that contract. And if there's anything in there you don't like, you can just cross it out and, and sign it. And I was like, you can, you can do that? And I was like, well, sure, they, <laughs> they could come back to you and say they're not going to sign it, but you can do that. And I just remember thinking, that's that's a great lesson. So there was something in there that said, like, you know, you can't work on your own stuff after hours. And something like that, which is like against California law anyway, but I, I crossed it out, you know, and it was just like, that's a great say no example. And it's a good example Mm -hmm. that you just have to learn and, and stuff like this, this podcast you're doing is good in the sense that it's helping people know just like, just, just to even know, like, like I was saying, it's not legal advice per se, but it's knowing that there are legal things worth getting a lawyer involved about. Um, yeah, I think I think people are really, I mean, it's not like people know you should have a dentist, but getting a lawyer, and, and we actually have at least one episode where we talk about how to find a lawyer. And we found a lawyer, we didn't have one in the, in the first few years, uh, and then a client threatened to sue us um, because they breached the contract. And, and we terminated the contract, and we fired them essentially because we said, you, you breached, so we're firing you for breach. And they said, how dare you? Uh, here's a letter from our lawyer. And we said, oh, we better have our own lawyer to respond. And we, we ended up finding Gabe. And and so I really, I feel a debt of gratitude to that client for threatening to sue us because that was one of the best things that happened to us in our business life. Um, and then we got Gabe and Gabe wrote a letter back. And of course, once they saw that we had a lawyer, because oftentimes that's all it takes, because it's really, and what I've found in dealing, because I deal with, uh, I've dealt with a lot of the contract negotiation over the years and I've, I've been, you know, really exposed to, uh, I've gotten a real education, um, and all this stuff and in, in negotiating so many contracts and thinking about these issues and being in sticky, uh, legal, uh, situations or, or contract situations. Um, it's, there's a lot more gray area than you would expect because you think like, oh, the, it's, it's very precise, but a lot of things are really squishy and that's why you need lawyers because you have to, you have to interpret things because even if you have very precise language in there, there's always negotiation. Like it's always the language you have is always kind of a starting place for negotiation. And, um, and so that's, that was one of the big parts of, of, yeah, you can always, you can always negotiate and feel comfortable negotiating. Like you can always say, like, what's the word? It's like, ask, what's the worst they can say? Is that, that old phrase? They could, maybe they could say no. But the, the other thing that's, uh, uh, that's really important, uh, God, and now I totally lost my train of thought, but just having, like, having a lawyer, um, 
gives you a better position in negotiation just because you have somebody to go to. Things are always open for negotiation. And it, it can be, and the, the, and the thing I always emphasize that we talk, and this is a lot of times it comes up in our conversations with Gabe is, is your relationship, like the contract is one thing and people want their contracts to say, okay, this will totally protect me in all these situations. Um, the relationship you have with people as people is just as important, if not more. Like the contract is there if everything else breaks down to, you know, to give you some, some, power and and places to to negotiate from but if you have a good relationship with a client or a good relationship then that is that is really really important um oftentimes even more so so you need both a good contract won't stop you from going legal but a good relationship will a good relationship will help you get paid or help you resolve and you want to resolve things without like the don't go to the courts don't you know i think you know, that before you get involved with thinking about legal things in a really practical way, there's a sense like you see courtroom dramas and you see lawyers and you have an idea about how it works. But it really is a lot of just like getting on the phone and going and saying like in horse trading and things like that. Mm. Um, and so de- like demystifying it is is really is really good. Yeah, that's uh, I, I have not actually needed a lawyer yet, but I kind of feel like like I, I empathize with what you, um, what you say about like just being grateful for this. What sounds like it turned out to be a relatively innocuous event overall, uh, but it forced you to get sort of arm up, and now you're ready for the, you know the things that actually, yeah, you, you were ready for the things when you actually could benefit from having him on board. Oh um, yeah. Oh and, oh, and I just I did remember the the thing I wanted to say that was oh, the, good. the big the big thing I learned. Um, which is that, uh, especially as a, a you know a person who who runs your own business, like having having like contract negotiations are some of the most uncomfortable conversations you'll ever have because a lot of times you've agreed to work together or you've agreed to enter in some business together, and now you have to have a conversation about all the ways you might possibly screw each other, right. and you have to go back and forth, and it's sort of it can be really tedious because you're working out these really minute points in the language to make sure they're unambiguous or to make sure you preserve a certain amount of ambiguity. You know, there's all this strategy. Right. And the one of the greatest things about having a lawyer is the realization that, hey, uh, I can hire somebody to have those uncomfortable conversations for me. Like that's a thing that you can outsource. That's a responsibility. And that right there is huge to say, OK, I'm just going to have my lawyer call your lawyer and they will work it out together. And and the two of us like like. The client and I can we can keep being super having super happy conversations about how happy we are to work together and right. lawyers can argue and that's fine. And the fact that that is something that you can just hand off to somebody and say, OK, you're advocating for me. That is, in fact, your specific role. And you can go argue with this lawyer and lawyers talk to lawyers about this stuff. And that's just what they talk about. That's like us talking about like code or something. There's no it's not their stuff. It's just their professional responsibility to, to work out this agreement. Right. Yeah, that's a really great example. That's probably an example where they where they are obviously worth whatever they charge when they can take that kind of delegation because it's not it's not just a task they're performing, but they're they're like they're serving a an like a, a intermediary role that you, mm-hmm. you can't invent that on your own. You can't say now you're talking to lawyerly Erica. Yeah, <laughs> so, so exactly. put friendly Erica on the side and yeah. Uh, so uh, the, I, I was really pleased when the Mule Radio Network started. Um, obviously, I'm a fan of John Gruber's. That was one of the first shows to was it the first show um, to launch on the 
on the now. Um, let's let's make mistakes. Oh, let's make mistakes. Oh, right, the they first... came back from uh, yeah from five by five, and, and then the, there was running from the law in the beginning, and there were there were a few others. Oh, okay, I think. yeah. Sorry to uh, sorry to no. di- diminish their importance That's in fine. the uh, origin story there, but um, was was it then like um, was starting the the podcast network something that how did that how did that start even getting talked about? Was it that you guys had started making podcasts and then realized you didn't want to be on other networks or was it um, um yeah it was it was a lot like that it was like hey it was it was it was sort of similar to how we started mule, which is like, hey, we like doing the thing um and we want to set the terms under which we do the thing you know that's a very familiar uh way to operate for us We're like okay, we like doing client services work let's be in charge of how we do the client services work. Right. Um, cause Mike and I, what we'll say, we are terrible employees. It's one thing we have in common. That's, that's the only way that you go out and you, you go through the hassle of starting your own business. If you're like, Oh, I am terrible and grumpy working for other people because I have my own ideas about how very strong ideas about how things should be done. And so if you're, um, if your ideas about how things should be done are stronger than your desire not to have to go through the pain of seeing every little thing through, then then starting your own things is, is a good thing. So we're like, okay, well, let's make a podcast network and see how that goes. And it actually worked. <laughs> like, I guess we have a podcast network now. It seems to be exp- you know expanding steadily. So yeah, it, uh, wow. Was it one of those things where it's kind of more successful than you even? hoped i mean if if i were in your shoes i think i might be feeling that way at this point yeah i mean because it's 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 always really qualified because you know it's growing and um and we have to think because now we have to think about how we want to grow it right and so it's not so one of the one of the important fact factors about many many kinds of success i think all kinds of success maybe other than um winning the lottery is that is that you get more success and then you have a new situation you've got to manage. Right. I guess it is kind of like mo money. Mo problems. <laughs> yes. Right. Because it's like, okay, it's bigger now. So all these, all we have a lot of great people who want the, to who pitch their shows to us. And we're like, okay, how many shows do we want to have now? Cause we thought like, Oh, are we going to have shows? And then it's like, Oh, we have sponsors. Okay. How are we going to manage the sponsor intake and make sure that our sponsors are served well and all that sort of thing. So, um, so yeah, it's not like there's no success where it's like, wow, this success is so awesome because this is success that takes care of itself is right. self self-maintaining success, like hydroponic self-watering success. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't really, it doesn't really exist. There, there's a spectrum of the amount of maintenance yeah. that, that success takes, but it always takes yeah. probably more than you expect when you're just dreaming about it. Yeah. I think when you're dreaming about success, it is that like, and then... <laughs> Every, everything just works on its own but uh but it's it's yeah it's super it's great and it's fun and people um people seem to like it and like the shows so yeah it's a, I'm, i've been enjoying several of the shows great. and and uh i, I was i was i want to share with our listeners something that they may not know about you which <laughs> i think i think maybe bridges the gap from Geez, was it at Dartmouth that you had this DJ experience? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I was a I was a, a college radio DJ. Dartmouth actually had, at least when I was there, two commercial radio stations. Wow. Yeah, one. Well, there's not a lot of radio in you know New Hampshire. You can so there was one <laughs> there was one AM and one FM station, and the AM station was a lot more like college radio, 
um, you know, very indie, had just an enormous library, like 10,000 artists who'd each put out one album. And it was sort of loosely programmed in the sense that you could go on and play whatever with, you know, very a low level of restriction. And then the FM station was a classic rock station that was an actual, like, legitimate professional station hmm. that people listened to and had very little college branding. Like, there was a, you know, once every 24 hours we had to do it. Like, this is, you know, run by the right. trustees of Dartmouth College or whatever. And, um, and so that one had very strong programming and you had to actually play songs that were being promoted like horrible Brian Adams things. And, um, and I spent a summer. It was, it was super great and super fun because, uh, so at Dartmouth, the sophomores have to spend a summer on campus in part to relieve some of the crowding on a tiny school. And so your sophomore year, all, everybody in your class spends the summer going to school. Um, oh. and I had a lot of friends in the class, uh, behind me. And so when they were all in school, I managed to get an internship at the radio station. So I got paid enough to pay rent, support myself, to because there weren't as many students, but they had to keep the stations going. So they had this program. And um, so I got paid to DJ for the summer, but I had, to, I had to work both stations. I had to do shifts on the FM and on the AM and uh, and so that was it's a lot of fun like i so i missed that that was the one the one thing i missed most after graduating from college was i missed djing it, right. it's just it was really fun like i especially i think i just had like five med students who listened to me on because i had a 6 a.m show on the am when i was in school and i'd play a lot of you know industrial music or like skinny puppy and like new order and the cure and um Awesome. Yeah. So you were, so can you remember anything about that? I don't want to put you on the spot. Can you remember like how you would introduce yourself on the, oh, just on the, the show? I didn't have a name. So some people, <laughs> some people had an identity. Some people were really like, Hey, this is right. Ross, the boss or what? I don't know. But I was like, this is Erica, you know, and, and I just play, I just play my show. And it was fun because we'd have like a newsie come in and like read the news in the morning and we got free breakfast. And I loved, I loved getting up at 5 a.m. and then like walking through the snow to the station and, and having my show and playing record, play records. And it was just a super fun thing. And then for money, you could, you could make extra money by running, by engineering the classical music show. Mm. With this, there was a math professor emeritus who did an opera show and um, a classical music show. And the opera, oh man, the opera show was rough because he'd bring in his personal, like from his personal collection of 30,000 pristine opera records. Um, he'd bring in like, like today we're listening to a particular recording of you know, Aida and it's 10 hours <laughs> long. And you have to sit there um in the studio and like attention would drift. Right. And like the red start to get the end of the record and you have to run like, Oh, and he'd be staring from the booth, like precious opera records, like flip the precious opera record. And so there was a lot of pressure. The classical, wow. the classical music station was fine and a little more relatable because it wasn't like 10 records of the same performance just going on for hours. It was, you know, put on this sonata and this, this chamber piece and this whatever. And, uh, and so it was, but then I, you know, I developed a rapport with him. Um, and, uh, and so it was, and then all the radio people, uh, you know, kind of knew each other and it was just, it was a, it was a fun, it was a fun thing to do, uh, to, to do. And it was like a real life skill too. That was the one, my one vocational, my FCC license was the one vocational thing I got out of my liberal arts education. 
uh, yeah, but it, it was it was super it was super fun, and I discovered that was the one time in my life I knew everything about music for that brief period. Right, you could you considered yourself a like authority on the subject for yeah, or for at the least, moment, yeah, and at least I had an eclectic. But I knew like all like any band that like, we'd get all these these you know the new CDs from from bands like weird bands. So I had like very strange taste from that time period because like oh this one band from Boston who released this one EP that was fantastic, and then of course you graduate and you get a job and it's really hard to stay on track on top right. of things like that. But yeah, just this being familiar with all of this super obscure music, and then of course having to go to the FM station and be like, oh, I'm going to play another Stones song. Oh wait, I can't play the Stones because somebody played the Stones last, you know, last show. I'm going to have to find something else to play that I like. So you got your FCC license, which means you had to do all that stuff like studying the seven swear words you're not allowed to yeah, say. Yeah, I did, I did take a test. There's like an exam, some sort of written exam and some sort of broadcast thing. Yeah, so I had to to be normal and, and deal with the transmitter and all that, all that stuff. But yeah, it, does was, that, it was super does, fun. Does that license, is that something you have to renew or do you just kind of get that for life? Is that, I have, of, no, that was such a long time ago. I have no idea. I know that I was, it might've been like a weird student license or something. All I know is I was allowed to broadcast on the airwaves. Right. That's great. So then you, uh, you, maybe, maybe your time working at the college radio station is the most direct tie <laughs> to something commercial you're doing today with Mule Radio. And I love looking yeah. back at those kinds of things and thinking like, well, probably the last thing Erica had in mind was that she would be running a so-called radio network. Yeah. Um, who, who knows at that, God, I can't even think back and like, what, what will I be doing? <laughs> You're like, hopefully I'll be back in California. I uh, had no idea. Well, actually, no, I think the thing aside from that, because the, the weird, the weird sort of great thing about Dartmouth at that time was how, uh, technologically advanced it was. That was the thing that, that has the most direct line because I started there in the fall of 1988 which is a very, very long time ago, our dorms were all Apple-talked. Wow. So well, and, the, the, and, That's and, funny because, when I, sorry to interrupt you, but the thing uh, yeah. I know coming from California and being a nerd and growing up with uh, various stuff and then finally getting a Mac, I, like many people who use a Mac, probably know Dartmouth as the source of the Fetch FTP uh-huh. app. Yep. So that sort of speaks to that technological advancement. Yeah. We we all used email to communicate. I didn't have a phone the entire time I was in college. Wow. We could so that's pr- a... we could print to network printers at the library when we had a paper. Um I le- I learned, you know, it was an all Mac campus when I was there. Um I you know, the first thing I did, I unpacked my Mac, I taught myself hypertalk, you know, so things like things like that. So in the middle of all of this like old Ivy New England uh, stuff. It was it was the technology, and it was using the technology in daily life. Because when I graduated, and found out that no one used Macs, no one had email, I was super shocked by that. That was my biggest right. shock coming out of college. Was hey guys, you know there's a way better way to communicate than the telephone, which is stupid. <laughs> it's fascinating to me because I also had this early exposure to technology um, thanks to growing up, and then I actually ended up going to school in Santa Cruz. Uh, which is, you know, totally steeped in the technology scene. Mm-hmm. 
And I just sometimes think back on that and I'm, and, and, and I take for granted as you probably do this, uh, just like implicit understanding of so many tech things that we, you know, like we understand email really well because we've been doing it for so long yeah. and it's like, it's like fish to water. And I just sort of think like, well, you know, if you would have gone to any other school, you might've gotten like a school that just wasn't tech savvy. And then you might come out of school just like not having that. Uh, and then yeah. who knows, who knows what happens then. But yeah. So I think that was actually the most, like you think about what is the direct line from school to work. Just the, the fact that in my daily life, you know, just in the, you know, we would turn in papers, like our professors would have drop boxes, you know, and we just drag the paper to the drop box. Oh, right. All of, all of these things that were just taken for granted with everything else. And this is like, again, why I say like, oh, there was all this privilege that I had no idea wasn't just the norm in every college in America. Um, uh, and that, yeah, that just working with, uh, with, technology and communicating online as a matter of course was was really fantastic um okay well erica it's been really great to hear this this background story i'm uh really impressed with all the stuff you do at mule uh uh the i i'm a also a fan of I, we didn't get a chance to talk much about it but unsuck it is a great site for, <laughs> for um you know just uh, it's an example actually it's unsuck it is not from the i don't believe it's in any way officially part of mule but i think it's an example of something you have a knack for which is um you know and, and again we didn't really get a chance to talk much about what you actually do on a day-to-day basis at mule but i know a lot of it is concern for sort of the um the way that language is used uh and i think that one of the interesting things is that you sort of help to give mule this simultaneous um irreverence and professionalism at the same time and i don't know if that's something you're consciously trying to do uh, but it's the way it comes off to me and i think that really works for a lot of your potential clients and, and mm-hmm. you know, just the way you want to be perceived. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that that does kind of, I think it is intentional and does come from the personalities of everyone here because we, we have a strong, uh, you know, kind of critical thinking methodology. We ask a lot of questions. And so that, that irreverence comes from that. I think they like, don't just um, ex- like question everything with, right. with the goal of, of, solving problems in the most efficient and practical um, and delightful way uh, and also have fun. Like that's really important. Like, like humor is often the best way to get your point across. People enjoy it. Like people don't like, nobody likes being lectured to. We could sit here and and like lecture people about what they should do, or we could do things in a fun way. And so I think it's that combination of, of, questioning and critical thinking and um and wanting things to be fun because why not that's more pleasant and also more effective because we're also pragmatists here uh so i think all of all of that comes together and also please stop and also think about that and this also goes to the contracts and all the legal stuff think about don't use words you don't understand don't use right. words because for, you know, for political reasons, like I, I talk about George Orwell's essay, Politics in the English Language all the time. 
it's like any content strategist or anybody who works with words should read it. Don't use words for political reasons. Use words to communicate. And that's that's why so much as business jargon is so terrible because it it obscures meaning and people use these words uh, not to communicate, but for other reasons. That's a great point. And I, I want to sort of wrap up here by trying to take a wide angle, going back to the philo- philosophy a little bit, philo- philosophical rather than philosophy per se. But like I was thinking earlier when you were talking about um, going to Dartmouth and you had this kind of, cl- I think you called it a class elevation or a, mm-hmm. you, know, you, you had, and, and then of course you mentioned, um, you mentioned that you had even in younger life been like a welfare recipient. That's actually something mm-hmm. you and I, you and I have in common. So I can, I can sort of relate to this, like being in different classes. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting about it though, is I think that's another example where you are, there's, there's something valuable to being able to inhabit as many classes as possible and like being able to sort of empathize mm-hmm. with the welfare mom and the, middle class, you know, workers and the Dartmouth students who just are pissed off because their, you know, their financial aid didn't cover their their shoes or whatever. Beer. Um, their beer. Beer, 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 beer. <laughs> let's, let's be clear about that. Um, but that's something, there's something, there's some loose connection in my mind to that. And then coming back to the kind of stuff you're doing now with Mule, it's inhabiting the class, mm-hmm. the business class, uh, which is the you know the the class of people who just want to get the job done and have it done professionally, mm-hmm. and the sort of um, the irreverence comes from yeah. some kind of like you know the fun the stuff the funness class. And mm-hmm. I don't know that's a stretch maybe, but I think that there's a there's something there that I think maybe you are because you're not single focused now on just having a design company that always projects this professional tone and doesn't do anything crazy like podcasts or side projects or books um that maybe comes from this appreciation that you can live in these different worlds and there's nothing wrong with living in multiple worlds at once yeah absolutely and and i think having having that perspective like we we always talk about the importance of empathy to design because you're never designing to solve your or very rarely designing to solve your own problem. You're designing to solve problems for other people. And having a lot of life experience um, or being in different roles or, or different positions or in, or in different worlds, uh, I think, contributes to that uh, that empathy that you can then draw on to solve because you could solve problems. You could say, okay, people aren't always in this one situation. People, And I think many people, especially today, especially because of how much of life is lived online. I think a a lot of people are in different worlds and different roles all the time. And you also have to take that into account when you're solving design problems is you might be solving something for one person, but that person is, you know, a parent in the morning and a vice president during the day and a super competitive tennis player in the afternoon and an aspiring novelist in the evening or something. And that person is like trying to negotiate all these things and save money for a house or something. And that's, and that's the complete person. So it's, it's about not thinking about people as flat stereotypes, but also as complex people with a lot of competing interests and thoughts and things. And and those are the people you're solving design problems for. That's a that's a great way to close, I think. And I really appreciate you coming on the show because I think we got a good example of the fact that you are not a flat archetype. Of, <laughs> you know, a design. You, yeah. you are a um, director of schemes. As I you, am a director uh, of jo- schemes. Jokingly, jokingly refer to it, but um, 
much more than that. And I really appreciate you coming on Bit Splitting. Uh, I hope uh, I hope that uh, you continue to have success with both the uh, design co- the design wing of the company and the the radio network. And I'll look forward to listening to more of your show with Gabe as I uh, as I go on my runs here around the Boston area. Yeah, keep running. Well, thank you so much, Daniel. This has been a, a great conversation. Great. Thanks again for joining me. Mm-hmm. And that wraps up another episode. Thank you for listening. You can find links for this episode and others at bitsplitting.org slash podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again. Thanks again.